If you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 11. Some people are practical. Do you know any practical people? A practical person uses common sense, common sense that everybody would have, just everyday intelligence. They make all of their decisions based upon just what they see and how they can think through a problem. That's somebody that you can know that they're, they're not flighty, they're grounded, they're realistic, and their goals don't tend to be in the clouds. I don't know if you know anyone like this. They, they know what they can get, and that's where they, that's where they aspire to. Okay? These are not the people who want to be on the MBA. These are not the people who want to be the number one at anything. They look at the world and they think, okay, what can I get reasonably? What can I get for? And then they strive for those. Something that they can, that they can grab themselves. Also, they're very flexible. A person who's practical, when something comes their way, they just go around it. They're not, they're not crushed when life doesn't work the way they want because that's part of their plan. They know that everything will oppose them, and so they just, or they're creative, and they just get around it. And a, a person who is practical is usually results-oriented. It's not about what they're trying to get. They simply want, they have a goal in mind that's attainable, and so they're very pragmatic. It's not about theories, and it's not about um, their ideology. They're not trying to be somebody or be something. They're just trying to live their life the best way that they can. That's a practical person. So if I think of practical person the way I've, designed, I've defined him to be, what would I think of a practical person? There are other people that are not practical at all. And they are way more lavish, okay? And you need these people, otherwise the world would be very, very boring. A lavish person is in some ways exactly the opposite of a practical person. Not that they're completely impractical, but they do seem like that they're impractical. In fact, they seem to be insensible, that they don't even know, they can't even see what is outside their eyes. All right, so it's not about trying to make something work. They are focused on an object, and that's what they want. They know what they want, and that's all that they want. It, they're blind to everything else. They, they want that, and that's what they get. They would rather have one thing that they want than a hundred things that they kind of want or didn't want. All right? That's a completely different person that's practical. They, they have an aspiration. There is a, an affection set to that thing that they want, and that's what they want, and they want nothing else. So they're not just seemingly insensible. They're seemingly unrealistic. These are the people who want to be in the NBA and are convinced that they will be. These are the people who want to be president. These are the people who want the top spot when there's one spot in the whole world, and that's what they want. They want that thing. They are mo more, they're more inclined towards indulgence. They're putting all of their eggs in one basket. They're not diversified. They don't have a diversified portfolio. They're also seemingly inflexible. These are not people who change their plans. When, when the world doesn't work the way they think it works, they double down. 
Now that's, that's scary because I, I don't think I could do it. But they would say, okay, um, so I'm going to put the 500000 on the table for the chance at the million. That's what they would do. They want the million, and 500000 isn't it. So if they have that opportunity, that's what they would do. They, they go big or go home. That's what a lavish person does. And they often express their love or their generosity beyond something that's strictly practical. They express themselves in a way that would make other people smile or laugh or blush, which is pretty cool. So in this very short passage, we're going to look at several people who are either one of these or another of these. And the Bible has put them together very, very short, shoved them together to force us to make a contrast. We're supposed to see them, and we're supposed to see the difference between them. Okay? So let's read. We're going to read a little bit from last week. We're going to start in verse 47 of chapter 11, and we're going through verse 8 of chapter 12. This is God's word. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? This man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all nor consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not? And this he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but also should gather together into one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think? Will he not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it, and that they might take him. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been raised from the dead. There they made a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag, and he was put therein. Then Jesus said, Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. For the poor always you will have with you, but me you will not always have. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us to hear your word, that you would allow me to speak with clarity and power, that you would allow us to know 
that you speak to people who fear you, who look to you for what you would give us, knowing that we need our daily bread from you and that you would give it to us, that you will not be stingy with it, but that you would abundantly pour out your blessings upon your people. We, we look to you as your people, and we are sinners, every one of us, but Jesus is a great Savior. And we thank you that you would allow us to come into your presence, that we would feast at your, at your feet, that we would enjoy your love, that we would feel your care, that you would allow us to, to throw ourselves with abandon and, and be, uh, be even more low in our sight than, than we are here, that we, would, that we would truly give you what is your due and what is our pleasure. Uh, would you be greatly exalted among your people and in your church, that you would uh, be God among us here um, as you are always God. Uh, and I pray that, that power would come out from this congregation to the changing of this town, and I thank you that you're, that you're willing uh, to meet with us today. We ask your, your, um, your teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. So after the resurrection of Lazarus, the Jewish leaders had a really big problem. If Jesus creates a big enough stir and enough people start following him, it will upset the status quo. The way things are can't stay. If the entire population of this country turns to the Lord, it cannot stay the way it is. And that is a big problem because it was a very, very delicate situation. It was, it was not safe. And they were so afraid that the Romans would notice. It was okay as long as a few Pharisees knew that Jesus was causing some trouble, as long as he, they could keep their eye on him, as long as they could kind of undo the damage that he was doing, okay, kind of clean up after him, then, then it was all right. And they were frustrated. They tried very much to try to stop him if they could, but they knew that things were going to go out of their control. As long as they could control it, then they could kind of make, make sense of the world. But as soon as the Romans got involved, then they were outclassed. You see that Palestine had been taken over by the Roman Empire a hundred years before this. So for a hundred years, a right, hundred years, a long time, four five generations of people had lived with the Romans being completely in charge. So initially, Judah was considered a client nation, all right? So Rome conquered people not always, they were so ruthless, people were so afraid of what they would do, but they acted really, really nice. They would take over a country and allow the government to be the same as it was. They didn't change the, the nobility, the royals, everybody stayed kind of where they were. The religion was fine, but there was a problem. Rome worshiped the emperor. The emperor was worshipped. And so there was a divine cult that you had to pay homage to the emperor as God. And how many Christians lost their lives because they refused to say that emperor, the emperor, whomever, was God. But the Jews had a very, very specific kind of exemption to this. 
when they took over Palestine, they changed a little bit, all right? So they put in their own king. Do you remember Herod? Herod isn't on the list of people that was related to Jesus. Herod was not the king, not the son of David. Herod was a political appointee as king of that nation. And that's why he was so imbalanced. He was afraid of the prophecy that said the king would be born in Bethlehem. It terrified him because he was the top of the he was the top of the pile. He was the top of the heap. He had to stay put, and he was at he was at Rome's um, pleasure. So he had to make sure everything was right. Also, the the nobility, all of the the rich needed to stay rich, and they were rich at Rome's pleasure. As long as Rome said they could do it, they could do it. They could be in charge. They allowed all the religion to stay put, and it, Rome uh, and Jews were exempt from worshiping the emperor in public. They couldn't do it. They were allowed because they understood that it was monotheism. They could not. All the other countries that had lots of other gods, many, many, the emperor just became one of many. But the Jews, they realized that that couldn't happen, that there was one god to the Jews, and for that reason, Rome said, okay, you do not have to publicly worship the emperor. And that was, they thought that was a really good thing. So Palestine, Palestine taxed these people individually heavily. Every single person paid taxes all the time on everything that they made, on every transaction, on every animal that they owned. Everything had to be taxed. And garrisons were placed all over the country with whole battalions, whole legions of Roman soldiers there to make sure that people knew that Rome was in charge. So you also had this idea that, that Rome often would try to dazzle people. With the money that came in all over the empire, they would, they would do things that could not be done. They could amass such money that they could do things that were ridiculous. So Herod the Great, the Herod of the, of the Bible, of the Christmas story, decided that he was going to refurbish Zerubbabel's temple. Now remember, Solomon built a temple. David, David collected all of the stuff, and Solomon built the most magnificent temple. But it was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. They came and they leveled it to the ground. There wasn't anything left. So when they came back from the captivity, Zerubbabel, who was then the king, he is on the list of, of the lineage of Jesus, built a temple. And the book, uh, the book of Chronicles and the book of Kings said that the people, the old men who had seen the original temple, when they finally finished the temple, sat down and cried and thought, is this all we get? They were so disappointed. They put up a trailer park in, in, in place of the most magnificent thing that had ever been seen. And it was just, okay, all right, that's fine. That's what we'll deal with. Now, Herod was like, nah, I'm going to be great. People are going to love me. They're, I'm going to give them magnificence again. So they took the core of the temple without completely destroying it, and he spent decades making it lavish. And so you had the temple, grand temple, with the courtyards and the courtyards and the courtyards and huge with colonnades and places where people could teach and all of that. So the people in charge, the priests who were in charge, and I already told you that, that a, 
that under Aaron, the priest would, the high priest would be for the rest of his life. He was a high priest and his son would be the high priest and it went down on a family. But Rome didn't like that. So they appointed one high priest every, t- every year and somebody won the lottery and he became the high priest. Well, here's the situation. Jesus is now claiming to be the Messiah that God has promised the one from history, the one that everybody knows about, the one that all of these people knew what the Messiah would be. You read the Gospels, sometimes you're not sure. They're like, how did they miss it? You scratch your head and go, the, the, the harlots and the prostitutes and the, and the tax collectors are coming to the Lord and the, and the people in charge of the religion are missing it? I don't think they missed it. I think they knew exactly what they were looking at and they were so scared because, oh no, I forgot to factor in God. God is still involved. God who hasn't shown up in centuries is suddenly now sending the Messiah. What will happen if Rome hears about this? Can you see the tension in the room? If Rome sees this as an insurrection, they will squish us. They'll take away all of our rights, everything that they said that we could have. Do you understand? It was a gilded cage. They were in a cage. And they loved it because some people were in the top of the pile inside this cage. And they did not want it to be flustered. They did not want everything to be done to the bottom because it said they'll take away our place and they'll take away this nation. We'll no longer, we will have to worship the emperor in public. We will have to do what the rest of the world is doing. So I, I don't know. I, are you afraid? Do you, Caiaphas was afraid. He made decisions based upon fear. Do I do that? Do I want to not ruffle the feathers? Do I not want to rock the boat? Do I want to make sure that this cage that we're in allows me to benefit when God, when he inv- in, involves himself, wrecks everybody's plans. And these people were willing to, to basically say no to God in order to maintain their little bit of, of shaky ground. So let's look at this. This is verse 47 in chapter 11. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees in a council and said, what do we do? This man is doing many miracles. If we let him alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and the nation. So Mr. Practical shows up, our first practical guy. Okay. Now, interesting that the word he uses for practical, King James. King James has a good vocabulary, and he uses the word expedient. Okay, Expedient means it'll work. Expedient is something that I can see, something that we can do, something that's within our grasp that'll work. Okay? Have you ever tried to use a wrench as a hammer? Have you ever tried to jimmy rig something? That's called making it work. You simply make it work. And it doesn't matter that I don't have that special tool. I can make it work. Okay? You don't need a plow when you got a shovel, I guess. Right? You can make it work. You can do whatever it takes to make it work. So Caiaphas shows up. This is verse 49. And one of them named Caiaphas, being a high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing, nor consider that's expedient, practical. It's practical for us that one man should die for the people. 
that the whole nation perish not. It does not matter that this is the Messiah. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter because I don't see God squishing us. I don't see the fire coming from heaven. I don't see the planets falling into the ocean and the mountains falling on people. If we can kill this man, let's kill him. If we can kill him before there's an insurrection, then Rome will leave us alone and we'll maintain what we've got. We got ours. Let everybody else get theirs. That's what, it, that's what he was saying. He was practical. He was a practical man that the whole nation perish not. I don't know. I think, I think we've got a jailer here. There is a God of this world that gives us, the, gives us our little stuff and we can live within our little place and this, the way this world is working, as long as, you, if, as long as you don't create too much of a stink, you're fine. The world may not love you, but you can make it. You can survive. You can have what, you're, have what you have. But if you live for the Lord, you will raise a stink. And if you raise a stink, you have to be careful because maybe your jailer will find out about it. And so you, I have to ask myself, how much, how much of my decision-making is from my practicality? Is it from my keeping myself alive? Is it so that I can live to fight another day? How much is it? How much, of, how much is fear a part of how I live my life? I, I don't want to lose my rations, I suppose. And that, that's really afraid because if you, can, if you can make people into prisoners and you can keep them prison bound for decades upon decades upon decades, people's okay with Rome. It's a new normal. We'll just live in this new normal and it does not matter that we were born free. It does not matter that we're in Christ's image. It does not matter. We'll maintain, we'll live. And that's not the life that Jesus came to give you. The life that he came to give you is abundant. And that abundant means that you're living out of your life. You're not just keeping yourself in your little camp and protecting your little borders. You're living, you're being spent, you're, you're on fire so that this world can be bettered because you were bettered. Something happened to you and suddenly the church means called out. We're called out of the cesspool that we live in. And now we've got a different commission. There's something for us different. And that's terrifying. And it requires courage that none of us have. To live like Christians is different from living like the way I live. That's different. Something is different. Now, John intercedes himself, makes a little commentary. This is verse 51. And he spake here not of himself, but being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but that he should gather together into one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day they took counsel together for to put him to death. Now, that is amazing. The high priest knew he was wicked, and he was doing wickedly on purpose. And he was going to kill Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the author of life. And God was in it. Now, he was guilty. He was wicked, and he was doing wickedly, and he was guilty. And God was in it. It was God's plan. It was God's will that he be crushed. That's what Isaiah said. It was God's will to crush him. God crushed his son. That was God's will that he do it. And Jesus, Jesus told, told people in the, in, 
Judas listening. The Son of Man will go as it is determined for him to go, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That there's two things going on at the same time. The sovereign will of God that says Jesus Christ will die as a substitute for man. And the wickedness that says, I want him out of the way so I can keep what's mine. Or I want to advance my cause and Jesus is not doing what I want him to do. That's, that's pretty interesting. Acts 2, this is Peter preaching his great sermon. 3,000 people come to the altar at this, at this sermon. And he says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Two things going on at the same time. God, God gave him up, delivered him, gave him by the determinate counsel, meaning the God made it happen. And you by wicked hands have slain at the same time. That's amazing. God is sovereign and we are responsible at the same time. That's amazing. Let's continue. 54, this is the end of chapter 11. Jesus therefore no more openly walked among the Jews, but went thence into a country in the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out for the country to the Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. When sought they Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, what think ye, will he not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees have given a commandment that if any men knew where he were, that they should show it that they might take him. So that's where we left off last time. We left off with everybody coming in for the Passover. This is the end. This is the, fi this is the finale. Coming in for the Passover, wondering if Jesus was going to come. And the people and the leaders saying, if anyone knows where he is, you're supposed to tell on him so that we can take him. Because we we've already determined that he has to die. So, let's continue. This is now John chapter 12. We're starting in verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one that sat with, at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Love to have Jesus for dinner. I'd make pizza. Now, I can imagine this dinner. Lazarus, it said twice in this one little three verses, had been dead. And Jesus had raised him from the dead. And he was sitting at the table. And Mar Martha was still being Martha. Martha's, no, people don't change. Martha was still scurrying around, getting everything ready. Okay? Going around and bumping into things and probably complaining. And Jesus was at the table with Lazarus. What were they talking about? I told you that I just asked myself questions. What were they talking about? Here's Lazarus, who was dead for days. Where was he? 
What did he remember? And what do you have to talk to Jesus about? Do you realize that when we go to glory, Jesus is going to be there? And you are going to be involved. He's not going to ignore you. You're not one of the myriad multitude of shining faceless lights that make him shine. There is an individual relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, our Savior, that will grow and grow and grow and grow. You, yes, you will fall down like you've been electrocuted. Yes, you will fall down, though dead. John, who loved Jesus, who said Jesus was his friend, sees him in Revelation and falls down as if dead, face down in front of, of God, who's glowing like, like burnished bronze. But this is, this is Jesus sits at the table and talks with Lazarus, and I'm sure there's some chuckling going on. Oh, you ain't seen nothing. Oh, I'm so sorry I brought you back. Oh, I know, I know, I know. It'll be okay. They really need you right now. You'll be fine. Yeah, you can remember it. Remember Paul? Paul said, I was so, so weighed down with what I had to do. The responsibility of my task was beyond my, my head. And God in his mercy let me go to heaven. And I saw things that could not be seen and couldn't be recorded and couldn't, I could never tell. And I would be such an arrogant snob if God hadn't given me a thorn in my flesh to remind me that I'm made out of dirt because I got to see glory later. So here's Lazarus going, bummer, but I do like pizza. <laughs> and there they are sitting, and Martha bumping and grumbling that nobody's helping her. And Mary comes in and ruins everything, ruins it all. The awkwardness of watching someone worship, that kind of uncomfort that comes when someone is being, well, what did McCall say? McCall said, isn't the king glorious today? Remember what he said? The king who's dancing around in his underwear in front of the maids and the, and the gutter slum. And, oh, how glorious the king is. And David said, oh, you, you think? I'll be more low than that. God is God above us. And if, if my worship bothers you, I'm so sorry. Not. I'm not sorry. But there will always be people when they watch somebody worship, that it just kind of goes, uh. But I'm not sure that that actually happened in this house. Because Lazarus, of all people, would have known what worship meant. And I think he would have just adored his, his sister. When someone does right, and you know they're doing right, there is a, there is a thought that is bigger than what you would hope for them. You want them to know God. You want them to love God really. You want them to, you trust that that is the most safe place that they could live. When you love God and someone is worshiping God, it is the most thrilling thing in your life. It's like air to a, to a flame. It builds you. It makes you happy. It's what you want. Myriad worshipers crying worthy is what we want.
That's what you're built for. It's what you want. It's what would make you delighted and happy forever. That's what you want. And, and here is Mary ruining everything. So what she does, now there's no chairs at this table. It's kind of a coffee table and everyone's kind of laying on a pillow on their side and kind of eating with one hand and kind of leaning. And Mary comes in behind Jesus and breaks open a treasure. Spikenard is a member of the honeysuckle family, but it grows only in the Himalaya mountains. So this is Mount Everest, right? So to import something from Mount Everest, if you've ever had some Himalayan sea salt, you can probably get it about $6.99 at Big Lots. But if you wanted a pound of spikenard oil, which is an essence, oil essence of this plant, which was very, very aromatic, very spicy, very woody, it would have cost a fortune, a fortune. If you would have to put that on a camel and have that camel walk from Mount Everest to Israel, you'd have to pay for it. Nobody's going to give it away. And it must have been hers because they didn't use it on Lazarus. Lazarus had been put in a grave and needed that because that's what you would try to stem off the puke. When someone's rotting and they smell like roadkill, that they would just douse them with this really strong, beautiful perfume that it would kind of douse that smell. And it was still in a jar. It was still in the jar. An alabaster box is made out of stone. It's a stone box full of one pound of something that would have cost a year's salary for a workman. Now, I don't know how much you make in a year. Some make more than others. Some make less than others. But a year? I would call that a lot of money. A year's salary. Now, later, Judas says, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarius? And a denarius is what you would pay a workman. And normally, you can almost right now think of denarius as whatever a hotel room costs. The, you know, the Holiday Inn kind of standard of Holiday Inn or the, or the Hampton Inn. What does that cost? That's a, that's a day's wage. All right? So if it's 100, it's 100. If it's 150, it's 150. I don't know what inflation is doing to us, but that's what it does. So 300 of those days pay is how much this cost. And she broke it and poured it on his feet and then wiped it with her own hair. Now, that's worship. There isn't anything else than that. It's worship. Worship is you are worth more than this. This is what everybody would call a treasure. This is a fortune. Only rich people have this, and I have it. And it's gone in three seconds. It went in three seconds. Caiaphas is like, okay, calculating. Well, what if this happens, then this happens, then, this, then I'm not going to have blah, 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 blah. And Mary looked at this very costly and broke it and gave it to him. And in a second, it was gone, and it was spent. And the house filled with the fragrance. Now that tells me John was in that room. John said that. I remember that day. I remember it as he's writing it. All I remember is that the whole house smelled like that perfume. That's what he remembered. It was extravagant. Extravagant love. Are there times for extravagance? If you were practical every day of your life, 
I don't know that you could love anybody. Sorry. I just don't think that your daily rations is enough. Once in high school, I took a girl to, to a pop machine at GoMart. I mean, talk about cheap dates. I said, there's a new pop machine at GoMart. And she said, really? And I said, yes, it's a Coke machine, and there's a big button at the top that says Coke, and all the little buttons are the ones that are not Coke. And I guess they want you to buy the Coke. And she said, well, that's weird. I've never seen anything like that. And I said, you want to come? <laughs> no kidding. I'm sorry, you can't live your whole life like that. There are times that you shoot the wad. You shoot it all. And you don't love if you don't do it. Because the lavish person latches on to the object of their love. And they're not trying to get somewhere. They're not trying to proceed down a road towards a goal. They only see what they see. And whatever it needs to get there is what they get there. And she looks at Jesus and says, valuable. And Caiaphas looked at Jesus and said, expedient. Expedient. So you end up, you end up really with a chess game, don't you? You have pawns that are, that are expendable, and that's what they are. You risk them so that you can get something else. And then you have the king, which is not, you, that is not expendable. The minute the king's gone, the game is over. So you would lose a queen to keep your king. Mary sees Jesus as king, and Caiaphas sees himself as king. And the way they live their life is based upon that idea. That's why John put it together. He put those together. Judas looks and says, why wasn't this spent on the poor? And you just want, you just want to shield your eyes. You're just like, oh, how embarrassing. Because John said he wasn't interested in the poor. He was interested in the bag because he held the bag. Everything spent on Jesus cost Judas something. So Judas saw himself. He saw it as very costly. Anything you give Jesus is very costly to me. Caiaphas said, anything that is not me, I have to spend on myself. And if it means crucifying the Messiah, that's what it means. And Mary said, oh, a year's salary? Pfft. I'll work another year. And she lays it all out to Jesus. Jesus is worth more than we can imagine. If you were to give every drop of blood, it wouldn't be enough to say thank you for what he's done for your soul. If you were to expend yourself in humiliation in front of the whole universe and let those shrieking demons mock it would be nothing because he's worth it if you were to see Jesus as the object of your affection your life would change let that happen Lord Jesus let that happen to us amen